in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Good evening, all you lords, ladies, knights, the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. Today, surprise guest co-host with me, Andrew Newman. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing really well. Got a first-time guest on the show, so that's, that's going to put me in a good mood. Ooh, that's always fun. Let's talk to this first-time guest, Travis Williams. How are you doing, sir? I am doing great. How about you? I'm doing fantastic. Are you into movies? I'm into movies. I don't think as much as you are, but I enjoy a good movie. Unless you work in the movie industry, I don't think you're into movies as much as Russell. So that's not the requirement. <laughs> uh, so uh, let's let's break the ice here a little bit. What is the last movie you saw, Travis? The Change Up. And it just happened to be on television. So, you know, I'm not too much of a big Jason Bateman fan, but my wife turned it on. And so we sat down and watched uh, The Change Up. This is the body swap with him and Ryan Reynolds? Yes. yes. Okay. Oh, that's pretty good. I saw that a couple of weeks back. That's actually pretty decent. So what, did you like it? I liked it, but I also found it, you know, one of those kind of corny shows. I'm not too big into, like, the body swap. I had pretty high hopes by the previous going in, and so I, I didn't get what I wanted out of it, but I still had an okay time with it in the meantime. But uh, it's not one that you'll remember in five years, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Andrew. Uh, not the change-up. What is your last movie that you saw? I went and saw Joker Tuesday night. Ooh. Uh, is it living up to the hype for you? It was. It was really good. It's a dark movie because, duh, you can kind of tell. But it wasn't, like, over the top. It wasn't gory or gruesome just for the sake of gratuitous gruesomeness in any capacity. But in terms of the acting the directing and everything. It was fantastic. The only thing I'll say is if you haven't seen any previews of the Joker movie somehow, I don't know how that would be possible, then definitely go see the movie because I think it would be even better if you hadn't seen any previews. Oh, I didn't realize that. But I also intentionally shield myself from a lot of previews because I'm very spoiler adverse. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of funny like that. Andrew, does it uh, go to the top of the pile of uh, DC movies? I know you're one fan of Wonder Woman and the Christopher Nolan Batman series. Is it a Suicide Squad or is it one of these movies? Oh, it's much more in that uh, it's, it's probably just a step behind Wonder Woman. It's very good. I mean, let's put it this way. The theater I was at, I was on a Tuesday evening at five, like 5.30 and the place was packed. People don't pack a theater for movies that kind of suck on a Tuesday night. It's good. It's going to be something that I think will be watched and will be considered a strong movie for years from now. Yeah. Now, Mary and I often enjoy watching the same kinds of movies, so we have a lot of overlap, but I find that most couples usually only have a small overlap or some overlap. Travis, what uh, what movie do you and your wife enjoy watching the most together? Probably the Harry Potter series. You know, our kids were young when it um, become a thing, but... I think the parents kind of grew into it a little bit more than the children did. That's solid. I love that series. Andrew, same question for you. Uh, you and Lisa, do you have much movie overlap? 
I think that the best answer to that question would be football. So football-related movies like Rudy? No, 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 no. I just literally mean what movies do you watch together? The answer would be football. But I'm just kidding, of course. Um, actually, the Harry Potter is probably a pretty good one. We uh, both are pretty big fans of that. And we uh, both watch a lot of the Marvel movies together. Outside of that, she tends to more of the chick flick-related movies, I would say, and I tend to prefer more the action-related movies. So that's where our tastes diverge. This is a common thing. This is common. And so what is the first thing that scared you in a movie, Travis? I would have to say Cujo. Oh, um, yeah. As a child walking through the room as the adults were watching the show, I caught you know the dog attacking the side of the car. And that's a very real thing. <laughs> you know, um, It's quite possible that could happen. And so I think just that in and of itself was terrifying yeah i always get nervous like when a dog runs out to the end of its chain and you're just like i hope that chain holds yeah so andrew what's the first thing that scared you in a movie arachnophobia my parents uh we rented two movies arachnophobia and moonstruck with Cher. yeah and i was so scared by arachnophobia that i did not go to sleep like my father and brother i stayed up and watched moonstruck with my mom and sister just so i didn't have to go to bed did it make it feel better? I, yeah, I, I don't know. Watching Cher was pretty scary, too. Well, if you could turn back time, you wouldn't have seen arachnophobia, I guess. So. If only uh, I could find a way. Yes. I think mine was probably The Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah, she got me pretty good when I was young. And I will even say uh, Margaret Hamilton in person form saying, I'm going to get you and your little dog, too. Like, she scared me before she was the witch. And then she scared me more once she was the witch. So it yeah. got worse. So uh, Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. What movie would you want to remake if you could remake a movie? Interesting question. Is it because I want to remake it because it's terrible? Or is it I want to remake it because I would like to see new actors in it? You're a big shot Hollywood producer. You can do whatever you want to do. You can say, I want to redeem this thing that had a good shot and it wasn't executed properly. Or you can say, I love it and I want to reintroduce it to another generation. Which I think is the intent sometimes of a lot of remakes, but then they don't pan out good. Yeah, a movie that I disliked would be probably the fourth harry potter i feel like they pushed it a little too far oh yeah yeah but if i wanted to remake a movie because i really liked the movie i'm gonna go with the one we're talking about today wow the shining yeah okay and uh, andrew how about you if you could remake any movie what would it be okay so i promise i came up with my answer independent but the Harry Potter Deathly Hallows, both movies, because uh, David Yates, bad things should happen for him for what he did with those movies. And I would, even if we could, I would just take, I'm fine with the original actors. I just want to shoot what she wrote. I didn't need him going off and creating this weird spinny stuff with Harry and, and Voldemort at the end. I just wanted her to, him to shoot and film what she wrote. That's all we wanted to see. That's all we need to see. When we watch Harry Potter, we just want to see what what she writes that's it nothing else great minds think alike sometimes so as previously mentioned we're going to do the shining this movie comes out in 1980 it is 14th on the box office that year uh, it grosses 44 million dollars it comes in behind urban cowboy and comes ahead of seems like old times the number one movie from 1980 was the empire strikes back IMDb gives The Shining an 8.4, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give it 85%, and the audience gives it a 93%. It is nominated for a few awards. Uh, it gets the Saturn Award for Best Director, nominated for the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actor, Horror Film, and Music, and uh, it won the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actor by Scatman Crothers, 
And but surprisingly, it's also nominated for two Razzies, which are the worst movies. So it gets nominated for worst director and worst actress. It didn't win either of those, but those nominations seem off. But we'll talk more about that going forward. Travis, why don't you take this one first? Had you seen The Shining before? If so, what were your expectations coming back into it this time, and did you enjoy it now? I saw The Shining about the first time three years ago. I kind of wanted to experiment a little bit more with horror films because I didn't really watch them growing up. So I, I did like to step back where I did The Shining. I did The Exorcist. So Oh, you're uh, starting at the top. Yeah, so um, you know, I did The Conjuring movie, so... Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it. And I'd like to tell you there's a lot of movies that, that's at this level, but at some point you're going to hit it. It's going to start to go downhill at some point because you're starting with really good ones. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple of bad ones. so. Okay, but is it holding up for you on a, a coming back to it? Yeah, so I, I just rewatched it, and I tried to go into it with a different perspective. One of those things, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit more, is what is actually happening in the movie. Because the big question is, is it a haunted hotel? Is it just a person going mad? And so I try to approach it with a different view this time. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where you, you're never quite sure what it is. And I think that's what adds to um, its greatness. Yeah, it's a fun one to come back to. Andrew, what about you? Had you seen The Shining before? So this is kind of funny. I would have swore to you that my answer would have been yes. And I'm certain that I had seen at least the ending of it, like, say, the last half hour before. But upon rewatching it, uh, I got to tell you, I don't think I'd ever sat down and watched it from start to finish until a couple days ago, which is funny because I've now watched it two days in a row. Did it change your perception of it, watching the whole thing, I assume? Yeah, I, I definitely seen the, the full beginning. You know, I know, like, there's just at some point in the movie, you're like, nope, I've never seen this scene before. So... I started to realize maybe I just hadn't ever actually watched the full thing all the way down. It, it was really good. I uh, really enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it was good enough that I watched it to, to, you know, yesterday and the day before. That's a good one. I watched this one probably about eight years ago or so. I was, I was in Pittsburgh by that point. We enjoy going through horror movie season, and this is one that we got off of TV, so it changes things a little bit. It, it takes the edge off when you watch it censored. Coming back to it now... My appreciation for it went way up to some degree. What uh, Travis was alluding to, there's a lot of there's a lot there to chew on that I hadn't really thought about before. I think I left before thinking I had it and just kind of thinking maybe they didn't like spell it out for me. But uh, upon returning to it, I realize now they're not. You're not supposed to have it spelled out for you. It was a rewarding rewatch, and I I like it considerably more upon a second and third viewing. But I should warn people. As we go forward, we're going to be spoiling The Shining, so if you haven't seen The Shining, I recommend pause this, go watch the movie, and come back and join us. And if you don't mind spoilers, stick around. We'll be back after these messages. Hello, I am Zernop. I have come to the great land of America. I truly love it here in this wonderful place. I love the long meat with corn on it mounted on stick from Carnival. My number one favorite thing here in America is the Retro Movie Roundtable. You can listen to it for free on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. And you can help the show by giving it a five-star 
rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the show on Facebook, email RetroMovieRoundTable at Yahoo.com. I still have so much to learn about this country. Like, why do you crush such nice cars at monster truck rallies? Why are people so excited about ice rink in town? In my land, whole city is ice rink. Also, why do you put chewing gum under the chairs on the bus? Do you suspect that they will want it later? Is it like me to penny take penny at gas station? So tell your friends and family and loved ones about the Retro Movie Roundtable. And Rebecca. Last warning, there will be spoilers as we go forward. Travis, for those who haven't seen The Shining since 1980, do you want to refresh people with what happens in The Shining? It begins with a man named Jack Trance, and he is a former school teacher and aspiring writer. And he's also a recovering alcoholic who moves his wife Wendy and his son Danny from Vermont to Denver, Colorado. He is offered a job, which he accepts, as the uh, caretaker for the winter at the Overlook Hotel. Uh, we learn during Jack's interview that the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground. It seems to be a very big Stephen King. Why does uh, everybody build on an la- Indian yeah. burial ground? <laughs> Stephen King. It's like, I mean, I, I, yeah. who's selling this Indian burial ground land to build on? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, and 10 years prior to that, uh, the caretaker, Charles Grady, uh, went insane and murdered his family before shooting himself. All this information doesn't seem to dissuade Jack from accepting the job as he is excited. He wants to be in this solitude kind of place so that he can work on a novel. So during Jack's interview, his son Danny is seen talking to an imaginary friend, Tony, who shows him a premonition of the horrors that await him at the Overlook. Danny collapses, and while being examined by a doctor, Wendy admits that Jack quit drinking when he dislocated Danny's arm after returning home drunk. This is when Danny begins his conversations with Tony. When they arrive at the Overlook, Jack takes a tour with the manager and his family goes to the kitchen with the cook, Dick Holleran. Once he's alone with Danny, he reveals to him that they both possess what he calls the Shining. It seems like by the description in the movie is that he has the ability to telepathically communicate with each other. Danny sees a vision while they're sitting together about room 237, and he asks Dick about it, who sternly tells him, do not go near that room. Once alone in the Overlook, Danny and Wendy explore the grounds, including a hedge maze, while Jack sits alone and works on his book. It becomes apparent that Jack is suffering from writer's block. Danny takes to riding his tricycle around the hallways, and one day he encounters two girls outside of room 237. Danny quickly has flashes of the girls standing in front of him and then laying murdered in the hallway. A month into their stay, a severe snowstorm hits. Wendy hears Jack screaming and rushes up to find him having a nightmare. He tells her about how in his dream he has murdered her and Danny. Danny walks in and has injuries, including scratches, along the side of his neck. Wendy immediately blames on Jack for their son's injuries. Jack is seen walking down the hallway in a fit of rage and enters the gold room. He sits down at the bar and is served a drink by the bartender Lloyd. Wendy walks in to tell Jack that Danny was attacked by a woman in room 237 and sends him to investigate. And we see Jack just sitting alone at an empty bar. No drink in hand, no bartender. When Jack goes to room 237, he encounters a young woman who exits a bathtub and walks nakedly towards him. Jack approaches her and begins kissing her, but when he looks into the mirror behind her, he sees that her body is rotting and waterlogged, and she is an old woman. 
He quickly leaves the room, but tells Wendy when he gets back that there was no nothing in room 237 and there's no one else in the hotel with them. Wendy starts fearing for Danny and asks Jack if they can leave the hotel. He goes into a fit of rage and returns to the gold room where we see a party going on and people in 1920s attire. A waiter then spills drinks on Jack and escorts him to a restroom so that he can help cleaning up, clean him up. The waiter has a conversation with Jack and tells him that his name is Grady. He also starts to inform Jack that his son is now telepathically having a conversation with Dick and that Jack needs to correct his son as he has corrected his family. Wendy gets looking for him and finds his typewriter with partially completed page. On the page is written many times over, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Jack appears behind her and asks her, what do you think of the novel? And when she starts fearing from him, trying to get away from him and begging that they leave, Jack starts to scream at her and corners her on the stairwell, at which time Wendy knocks him out with a baseball bat and drags his limp body into the storage cabinet in the kitchen. Jack is then approached by the ghost of Grady, who promises to let him out only if Jack will remedy the problem of his family. Danny, back in the room, goes into a trance and starts mumbling over and over again the word red rum. And he grabs Wendy's lipstick and starts writing it onto the bathroom door. Wendy wakes up and tries to console Danny, but when she sees the writing in the mirror and realizes it is the word murder, and Jack appears at the door. Jack attacks the door with a axe, and Wendy and Danny lock themselves in the bathroom. Wendy gets Danny out the window, but finds that the window is too small for her to fit through. When Jack makes a hole into the bathroom door and tries to reach in, Wendy slices his hand, and Jack quickly retreats. He is then seen stalking the hallways with an axe, and when Dick Holleran shows up on his snowcat and walks into the hotel to try to help the family, Jack attacks him with his axe, killing him. Danny then jumps out of a cabinet and runs out into the hedge maze where Jack follows him. Danny realizes Jack is tracking him by his footprints in the snow because Jack is nowhere to be seen and starts to walk backwards and in circles to confuse Jack, which seems to work. And when Danny exits the hedge maze and leaves on the snowcat with his mother, Jack gets lost inside, quickly gives up, and freezes to death in the hedge maze. The next day, the picture in the hallway shows Jack amidst a bunch of partygoers in 1921. One of the things I want to talk about early on here is this movie, I guess Stephen King wasn't so kind to about, was that his book and the movie have a lot of differences in there. Andrew, had you seen anything about the controversy between King and Kubrick on this? Yes, I have. Essentially, it's kind of what you were initially alluding to about whether or not it's the house that's haunted or whether or not it's people, and that the ending in the book versus the ending in the movie are obviously very different in terms of what happens. So uh, Kubrick immediately, upon reading it, was like, yeah, I know I'm not doing that ending. <laughs> he, he was like, he was like, yeah, he was like, that's nice. Great, for, great job for your book. 
but that's not going to sell movie tickets. It's one of those interesting things. I read, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, if sp- book spoiler, which I don't feel as bad about on this one as I do with movie spoilers, but uh, and there's the, instead of a hedge maze, they have a yard full of animals that are cut into the hedges, and the animals are supposed to come alive. And in 1980, that would have been a difficult thing to achieve, but also, I don't think that would be as good. No, it's very, like, um, fantasy kind of horror. Yeah. Which a lot of Stephen King's is. To me, that feels a little Goosebumps-like. Yeah. I wouldn't be too interested in seeing that kind of action going on. Also, you know, Stephen King wrote, like, the initial plot script for the movie itself, and Kubrick threw it out. Yeah, he did. So Stephen King wasn't very happy about that to begin with. And I think whether he liked the movie really or not, he was never going to admit to that. That You could be right about that, just being sore about that. Regarding, uh, you know, Stephen King being a little more of the fantasy side of horror, I would honestly say that the only difference between him and Game of Thrones is in his stuff, people don't wear fur. It's <laughs> a good point. One of the direct Stephen King quotes, because he was quite salty about this, Stephen King was quoted as saying, uh, while he admitted uh, Kubrick's visuals were good, uh, he said it was all surface and no substance. He said, it's like a great, big, beautiful Cadillac with no motor inside. You can sit in it. You can enjoy the smell of it, uh, the leather upholstery. The only thing you can't do is drive it anywhere. So I would do everything different. The real problem is that Kubrick set out to make a horror picture with no apparent understanding for the genre. Everything about it screams from beginning to end, from the plot decisions to the final scene. So he's not just a little bit sad about it. Uh, he's he's very outspoken about it. So yeah. um, well, I think he has one real leg to stand on here. The book that Jack Nicholson finds in the book, it's that he finds this that's been left there, and that's what starts turning him crazy. And in the movie, they basically only show it in a a scene once, and that's actually a a driving force in the book. So I can see why uh, seeing that scene, which, given how long that movie was, we could have easily put up with an extra two minutes of oh, he finds this scrapbook of stuff that's happened there and it's helping turn him crazy. I think that scene could have definitely been in to move the plot along quite a bit. Yeah, and King didn't stop his criticisms at just Kubrick. He criticized the cast as well. He thought either Michael Moriarty or John Voight would be better to play the role of Jack Torrance. He was critical of Jack Nicholson, saying that he seemed insane before he ever arrived at the hotel. Yeah, I I, I can see that, but I also kind of feel like the character itself, even from the book, He's an alcoholic that's kind of fell off the wagon, and now he's trying to recover from that. The book alludes to the fact that he punished a student or had some kind of altercation with the student and was fired from his job. So. That's so funny that you say that, because Mary kept saying like they didn't mention in the interview why he wasn't teaching anymore. She goes, I bet it's because he was abusive. And so it's funny that you say that, because she deduced that without anything. He is. I did say during the interview that you know he said it, kind of made ends meet but he was never really interested in it yeah stephen king also criticized shirley duvall as wendy he he said wendy was supposed to be a blonde former cheerleader type who never had to deal with any problems in life until now and that would make it more terrifying he felt that duvall was emotionally vulnerable and appeared to be have gone through a lot in her life already and that's the exact opposite as what the character should be uh, so he said uh, she's just there to scream and be stupid, he said. It's one of the most misogynistic characters ever put into film. So again, laying on the criticism for Kubrick. Andrew, is is he right about any of this stuff? Or where, where do you stand? Uh, do you like Nicholson and Duvall? I like Nicholson. I do not like Duvall. 
Okay. Not a fan of hers. I actually wanted to bring this up uh, when you mentioned earlier about the box office. Uh, giving her credit where it's due, I believe that like two slots ahead of this was uh, the Popeye movie where she plays Olive Oil. Yeah. And so, I mean, think about that. That's one heck of a year to have the Popeye movie and The Shining. But honestly, I mean, she was not good in this movie. And I'm not a very big fan of hers to begin with, but uh, I can understand why Kubrick had to do 87 takes with her sometimes. Okay. Another big difference in the book, although this wasn't called out as much, is Danny Torrance's imaginary friend Tony is not given much explanation in the 1980 film. There's a lot of ambiguity there, and there's a lot of ambiguity in this film. And uh, Tony in the book is actually Danny's adult self. And Tony is his middle name, or, or Anthony is his middle name. And so uh, in the book, Danny sees an adult version, although he doesn't know it's himself, speaking to him on his half. And he's like a benevolent protector to take care of himself and his mother through this difficult time, which is really compelling. And I like that. I think that's that's a good premise of a whole other movie. But I'm glad Kubrick didn't go that way at the same time. Again, it gets back to it's fantastical. Yeah. To me, Danny come off in the movie as being slightly autistic. He behaves in ways more like a child with autism. And I think that adds to kind of the character. Uh, not that he can time travel or do whatever. It, and it's kind of played down a little bit in the movie. Again, the shining part of it. So, you know, Danny can see the future. Danny can see the past. And Danny can talk to people. Clearly, Dick Holleran doesn't have the same characteristics, although they say they're the same because he took an axe to the chest and never saw it coming. <laughs> you know, th there's not much of an explanation over what the name of the movie is. Some people shine, some people don't. Yeah. And some a little bit more than others, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting in the source novel, uh, Dick Holloman survives, although not so much in the movie. Jack attacks him with a rogue mallet, not an axe. There's some differences in that as well, so big mm -hmm. differences. Uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing a mallet being a scary. Yeah, uh, they kind of show this. So there was a miniseries uh, that Stephen King did, so he had his opportunity to present the movie in the way that he felt that was appropriate and it was kind of a flop it kind of shows that kubrick did the right things but you know it, rogue mallet is basically i know it as a croquet mallet and i don't see it as anything that's going to withstand much of a hard swing that's fair i still don't want to get hit with one in the head but yeah no i think one time but you know in it jack does the same thing to the door in the miniseries with the mallet which is near impossible i don't think you Hollow, a solid door. It's a crappy hollow frame, um, hollow frame wood door from the 80s, maybe. Yeah. Andrew, why don't you give us a cast rundown of the major players here? Okay. Uh, well, I think the most important is uh, Jack Nicholson, as we've already talked about. Shelley Duvall as the wife. Danny, I'm forgetting his last name, as Danny. Danny Lloyd. There you go. Interesting thing about him I just wanted to bring up real quick. reason why that I think maybe he came across as seeming autistic is he had no idea that they were filming a horror movie. Yes. Yeah, he... It, they, Kubrick they, shot the whole thing in such a way with him, it's his scenes, that he thought it was just a movie, a drama, about a family that goes and stays at this hotel, and parents fight sometimes. That's what he thought was going, what was going on. So I think that makes sense as to why he seemed a little more autistic. For some reason, my sheet with the rest of the cast is not in front of me. You want to help me out here? Sure. Because it's got the best name of all time. 
Uh, Scatman Crothers plays Halloran, who's the cook of the hotel, and he's the one who identifies Danny as having ESP powers. Barry Nelson plays Ullman, the guy who hires Jack and gives him an interview. He's rather upbeat, given what's happened there in the past. Grady, who is the butler or the ghost who encourages Jack Torrance to go off on his family, is played by Philip Stone. Lloyd, the best bartender around, is uh, played by Joe Turkle. And the doctor who inspects Danny as a young boy is Ann Jackson. It's a tight cast, as many horror yeah. movies are. There's n- there's not many people. Um, a lot of the movie is filmed where it's just the three family members. Yeah. And occasionally the ghosts, which, you know, we can get into this a little bit more. But, you know, I, I kind of question that they are actually ghosts. Yeah, we'll get into some of that here in a minute. But let's talk about the cast here a little bit. It's interesting. One of the fun facts that I saw is Danny Lloyd would move his finger on his own just kind of spontaneously did it and during his audition when tony was talking and they liked it and they had him do that so that whole wiggling your index finger like going danny's not here right now miss torrance like so creepy yeah i i I agree with that i mean it's creepy to watch and as a parent what would you be thinking but uh it didn't seem to bother her no Jack Nicholson claimed that the scene where Jack uh, snaps at Wendy and interrupting his own writing was was difficult for him because he himself had been a writer and uh, he snapped at his girlfriend. And so uh, he kind of drew on some bad memories of uh, yelling at her, things like saying, like, if you hear me typing, if you don't hear me typing, that means I'm working. <laughs> so he dipped into character there. Andrew, what would you think if you saw Robert De Niro or Robin Williams in the role of Jack Torrance? I think I could buy the De Niro just fine, but my gosh, the number of movie roles that I read about that Robin Williams got considered for in the late 70s and early 80s that I'm just like, thank goodness they did not pick him for that. I Nothing against Robin Williams, but no, 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 no. I can't, like, basically imagine Mrs. Doubtfire swinging an axe. <laughs> I think he's gone darker than that. <laughs> oh man uh so there are some other actors so believe it or not de niro and robert Williams were strongly considered for the roles i'm kind of glad williams didn't get it because his career would have gone in a very different way had he done this i think yeah and uh other actors who this is more falling down the list but these are more allegedly by according to the internet you got harrison ford chevy chase martin sheen leslie nielsen james brolin and christopher reeve and gosh i can't christopher reeve would I, he's just I, why would you put him in that like, superman yeah. yeah he's too nice he actually was what in the children of the dam yes he was but he's a good guy in that still yeah yeah i, I don't know that that's the right role i mean to me i would just love to see gary Pusey. <laughs> I, I think you know if anyone can pull off crazy a little bit better than jack nicholson it's gary Busey. so i kind of want to see him in that role gary Busey's shining okay jack nicholson uh, you guys it's interesting that you guys uh had mentioned shelly duvall and that uh she has gotten a lot of criticism for this she got nominated for a golden raspberry at the time and she wasn't uh, necessarily uh celebrated for it but shelly duvall was timid and dependent and playing wendy and that she was had to be somebody who would kind of take this uh, kind of behavior from Jack and from the beginning. So Jack Nicholson read the novel, wanted Jessica Lang for the role of Wendy, and he even recommended her to Kubrick. Uh, but Kubrick convinced him that Duvall was the right choice. And in a documentary making The Shining, Kubrick's fierce demands on everyone, Jack Nicholson admitted to having a good working relationship with him, but he picked on Shelley Duvall more than anyone. He gave her a hard time. 
He treated her badly. He would give her no sympathy. He told everybody else around her to give her no sympathy. He treated her very badly to put her on edge. Uh, I don't know if this is just because he treated her badly or if like it was, was a method direction way of trying I to make her he feel was, bad. Yeah, trying to, you know, she's playing a part in Kubrick's film. She's an abused wife. You know, the family's abused a little bit by uh, Jack and I think he wanted that uh, feeling of someone run down that's been abused. And so he did many, many takes of scenes. I think it was 148 takes for the um, bat swinging yeah scene so and he did these kind of things just to kind of put them up at a place where they were physically spent and they were in a position of what they actually would be in if the things that were happening around them were real yeah and Shirley Duvall suffered from nervous exhaustion throughout filming she had physical illness and uh, she even had hair loss as a result of like yeah. this treatment throughout this so uh, not a fun time was had, and Angelica Houston, uh, who lived with Jack Nicholson at the time, uh, she said that he would just come home after really long days of repetitive reshoots, and he would just like collapse in bed and immediately go to sleep. So this was this was a hard one to make for people. People weren't having fun on the set, and even Scatman Crothers cried at the number of times that they had to shoot over and over again. And in tears, he just looked up and he's like, "What do you want from me, Mr. Kubrick?" Yeah, and I think the scene with him and Danny in the kitchen is filmed 80 sometimes so you know imagine the stress on a five-year-old child ah uh, yeah yeah he, danny actually said that was one of the reasons that he was pretty sure he got picked was because of his ability to concentrate which is hard to do as a kid mm -hmm. yep one of the things that was interesting though is that uh it's the, almost the inverse of what happened with shelly duvall the uh, danny lloyd the actor who plays danny in the movie he had a very good relationship with Kubrick he was treated very well like you see clips of him sitting on Kubrick's lap playing ball with him and uh, even though he was made to do it time and time again as Andrew mentioned he held up pretty well and was just very patient and was a true professional at it and Kubrick wrote him birthday cards as, as he grew up wrote him a graduation gift and always thought of him and so uh, it's an it's interesting how there was a kinship uh, I guess Kubrick you know was quite a family man himself uh, but uh, it's interesting that uh, this, on one hand, you've got like he's treating Shelley Duvall like crap so that she seems scared and at wit's end. But on the other hand, he uh, remembers to, to shelter a child like Dan, like uh, like Andrew said, when, rather than scaring him, you know, shooting it. And then when you when you think about it, all the scary stuff, you see Danny's face and then it cuts away and then it shows mm -hmm. you the scary stuff. You don't see them in the frame at the same time. Yeah. Andrew, what do you think about? This is a big one that we're about to get into. What do you think about Stanley Kubrick's job as a director here? So I think the really hard thing to judge here is that if you go down uh, the Wikipedia on Kubrick, almost the same thing happens every time, which is like, oh, there were some mixed reviews, and then now it's considered to be one of the greatest films of all time in the genre. Oh, there were some mixed reviews, and now it's one of the greatest films of all time in its genre. Like... We get this with uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. We get it with Dr. Strangelove. Didn't he do Spartacus? Uh, then he did he, this. Um, I'm no, I'm, oh, well, then we get Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut. So I think it's the, he, he's awesome. I mean, he's Stanley Kubrick. Like, criticizing him is kind of like trying to criticize Babe Ruth back in the day. It's like, okay, you really think you were going to do any better than that? The guy is just awesome. I know that's not the the most intellectual of answers there, but 
the dude hits like an amazing number of awesome movies. Yeah, well, he he definitely does, and he he shows a lot of range too, really. Yeah, I think when you look at this directing as his directorial style, and you start um, really digging into it, like his his use of the camera and his angles and stuff is just on another level. Uh, he's doing things that other directors are not doing. He's using eighteen millimeter camera so that. The hotel looks large and abandoned, you know, and he's using those same cameras uh, as he's filming Jack inside the storage room to help distort his face and make him look just a little bit more deranged than, you know, he naturally already looks. His way of following Danny around uh, while he's on his tricycle kind of gives you the feeling that you're a monster stalking Danny. Um, he, he doesn't just stick with him. He allows him to get to the end of the hallway, kind of like you've lost your prey. Or that there's a, another presence there. Maybe not monster, yeah. but like a ghost, or like there's another entity yeah. around. Yeah. One thing I'm a big fan of is the scene with the maze with uh, Shelley Duvall and Danny, because the, you start, you hear the music, you're looking at that big maze, and we're all thinking the same thing of like, oh, something scary and nasty is going to happen here. And then. They, they kind of get lost for a second. They turn around, and then they make it to the middle, and they're like, oh, this is beautiful, and they walk their way out of the maze. And you're like, oh, my God, I thought they were totally going to get, like, attacked there. And I just thought that that setup is just done really well, and I don't think most directors would be able to do that. I agree. There is, I would say, one of Kubrick's best assets in this movie, or what he, I would say, one of his best skills in this is his ability to build tension. It's 45 minutes before any conflict actually arises in this movie. I looked at it and I was like, there's nothing inherently wrong here until 45 minutes into this movie. And Jack doesn't truly snap and become violent until an hour, 45 into this. Why are you uneasy? You're uneasy from the beginning that he even goes into the interview. You're uneasy as they drive up to the hotel. And again, it's not a typical for the genre. Again, Stephen King would criticize Kubrick for not knowing how to direct horror. You go into this hotel, and it's beautiful. It, it doesn't look like you wouldn't want a vacation there. It doesn't look like it's got cobwebs and darkness and tons of shadows everywhere. The horror comes from the characters, and that's pretty unique about this movie. Yeah. And to your point, Travis, there's a lot of great camera work in this, and when you go back and watch The Shining, look how many one-point perspectives there are. You go down these corridors, one-point perspective. You go down the hedge maze, one-point perspectives. You got a lot of these long, narrow, there's symmetry, but it, it's it's unnerving. And yeah. what it does is it gives you a sense of being confined, like you don't have anywhere to go. Even though this is a very big hotel, it does give you that sense. Yeah, like the walls are closing in on you. Yes. Andrew, did you feel like Jurassic Park a little bit watching uh, Danny climb in the kitchen uh, cabinet and having Jack come in with like an axe like in the middle of the kitchen? Like it like it just reminded me so much of the raptors coming into the end of Jurassic Park and then uh, Timmy's like sh- jumps into those metal uh, cabinets. So what you're saying is that since this came out first is that really Jurassic Park is an homage to Shining. I honestly think it might be. That's a great scene in Jurassic Park too, by the way. I love that scene in the kitchen. I, I, I'm totally with you. I, everybody, everybody knows that. Anybody that's seen that scene, particularly our age, because you know that movie was iconic for us. Uh, that scene holds up very, very well. So yeah, I definitely agree there. I have to say, can we talk about the the biggest 
flaw outside of, you know, we mentioned some of the things earlier that, hey, he could have stuck with the, the book a little bit more and had things make a little bit of sense, is the biggest flaw is what everybody does at the end makes, like, no sense whatsoever. Like, particularly the way that Danny's running back into the house, the, you know, like, she's like, oh, I know, I'll drag him into this thing. And it's like, I'm sorry, but he said he was going to kill you. <laughs> he said he was going to, and he didn't say he was going to kill you. He said he's going to bash your head in. Maybe you bind him up. Like, you got a child there. I don't know. Maybe this isn't one of those times where we show tons of compassion and mercy. Maybe we just go grab some cord or and make sure that he can't get up. And then we go to get to help. And then we come back. And if he died, I'm sorry, he died. He said he was going to bash your head in. Well, she locked him in a room full of dry goods, which is supposed to be pretty, you know, like he's locked away, effectively. And I think that's a moment where the film acknowledges that there is supernatural presence there because it is that is the first time that you're not sure that Jack is not just schizo or like losing it. You like the whole time you're questioning, is the house haunted? Is Jack going crazy? You know, is this writer's block going and becoming insane? Is the house affecting him? Is what he heard about what happened in the house influencing him? And when Grady's ghost actually unlocks the door, physically, there's a physical presence that unlocks the door. That's that moment late in the movie, Andrew, that you're like, like kind of like that scene where you're talking about, like, aha, there is something here. Yeah, well, I think that if we weren't certain that there was something here, the scene where Shelley Duvall, the door, the hotel room door opens and she sees a guy in a furry costume performing <laughs> a sexual act on one of the people that works at the hotel. Like, I think if we didn't know that there were other people there than Jack Nicholson and it wasn't just his imagination, that firmed it up pretty strongly. No, you're right. You, there, there, there's also unless you bleeding. think she was just imagining that too. There, there was a guy with a bleeding drinking a tea rather pleasantly, like, "Hello, I'm drinking tea and I'm bleeding." I yeah. think that was right after that, and so that's why I went with the, uh, yeah, you know. the furry blowjob. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think the scene that you're talking about, what was amazing to me about that is she's just locked her husband, who has threatened her life, into a storage cabinet. She goes and grabs a knife and goes back up to her room and falls asleep. <laughs> Who really does that? There's no way off the mountain. Remember, she goes to the snowcat and it's cut up. She's stuck. Yeah. She's stuck. So there's no way of getting out. Yeah, but do you do you think you sleep at that point in time? Because she runs out of the snowcat with the knife. So I mean, like, where else are you gonna go? You've got nowhere to go. Yeah. The the, the radio contacts pulled out because he he pulled out the radio contact. There's no phone contact. You're not going to walk 25 miles in snow. I mean, you'll die. Uh, so what else would you do? Yeah. I mean. I think I'd be waiting. You know, I, I don't think I could fall asleep at that point. But I was sitting there thinking, I was like, you locked him in the place where a half of your food is. You have nothing yeah. but frozen meat to get through the next mm -hmm. how many months, which is probably enough food because there was a lot of meat. But I'm, I am saying it's like nothing but meat. Yeah. <laughs> You're on the Atkins diet now. What's wrong with this kid that he doesn't like lamb? <laughs> yeah, that's true. The the part that I, I kind of question is, you know, they go through this whole part at the beginning with, um, you know, it's built on the burial ground and, and hey, our caretaker ten years ago murdered his entire family. Right. And and you gotta wonder, like, what did you do for the last ten years? Who else has been there? Like, you, there's nothing. 
going on. It's almost like a, um, you know, I hate to keep referring to Harry Potter, but it's almost like the care magical creatures teacher or the uh, defense against the dark arts. Yeah, 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 like, dark arts, yeah. No one stays and does this job for multiple years. I was literally going to say the same thing. <laughs> that was funny. You're not liking Jack right away in the beginning when they're like, "Do you think your family's going to be okay with it?" They're going to love it. <laughs> they're like, didn't ask, didn't care. No. No little boy wants to go like live in isolation for, you know, yeah. eight months. <laughs> okay, I got to say, though, if like when I was a kid, if my parents had been like, said that's what we're going to do, me and my brother would have been like, wait a second, we don't have to go to school and we get to run around a huge hotel all day and like play. Yeah, I think we'll be just fine with this decision. You get to play with two twins who want you to come play with us forever. Not so much fun then. No, no, no. So the filming actually originally was supposed to take 17 weeks, and according to Variety magazine, the film actually took 200 days to shoot. So, uh, however, according to Gordon Stansworth, it took even longer than that. So it took about 51 weeks to do. So Kubrick's grueling pace led to a long, drawn-out uh, work. So Kubrick is a perfectionist. He's done this in other movies. He just shoots over and over and over again. So... Uh, Andrew, do you think that's excessive or, I mean, we never saw the edits, of course, but does it pay off? I mean, it's a wonderful movie, but I have a hard time believing that the first 40 cakes were so bad that we could, would have gotten a much worse movie. Like that's hard for me to believe, but at the same time the people aren't very clear on what they say of what a take is. So like if he's having you try with different lines and, you know, and he's got if each take is legitimately different, then, you know, it's worth it. That's a masterpiece. And Kubrick shot the film in script order so that that actually helps the actors, you know, build that like level of in, like that progressive layering of insanity that uh, is building up. So, again, trying to get the actors to feel the build. I'd say it does show on the uh, I would argue it shows more in Chili Duvall than Jack Nicholson. I, I do see some criticism by King of saying Jack does seem like he's if he's not crazy yet, he's one step from crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the, in, the intention. Maybe. Andrew, you're a Star Wars guy. This is shot in the same studio that Empire Strikes Back was, and a lot of the snow is the same snow that you get in Empire Strikes Back. It's, they made a ton of fake snow here in the Eberly Studios in London, England. Kubrick, again, he was here for a long time. They actually had to delay subsequent movies here. Kubrick's the man, so he got to do it. Oh, I did not know that about the... Uh... But that's Empire Strikes Back snow. That's right. That, so that, that, that snow had a very profitable year then. It did, yeah. So the hedge maze snow is, is also the Battle of Hoth snow. Uh, I thought that was really interesting in the behind the scenes to get that fog in the atmosphere. They pumped this fog into a studio. This, it looks like it's shot outside, but all of this is shot inside of a studio for the most part. And the lighting inside was really yellow and warm. And they put a filter on the camera to like drain out all the reds and stuff like that to make it look cold and blue. It's really surprising. Hmm. All that daylight that's pouring in the hotel, those are really bright lights in the studio. They said everybody running around the snow out there, it's 90 degrees inside of a studio. And uh, that's just pretty wild. Yeah. Like, you know, they wore, you know, a lot of heavy clothing in filming so i think at some point she's wearing a pair of pants and a skirt over top of it and a long shirt so you know it, that would be sweltering yeah you can see actually once i read that or I, I saw that jack nicholson is like sweating as he's running through the hedge maze and i'm sitting there like eh, it was 90 degrees in the studio there no wonder he's yeah. he's sweating as he's moving through 
Plus, it makes you seem a little bit crazy if you're sweating and then it's uh, in the middle of a blizzard outside. So, yeah. What did you think about the lodge that they were in, Andrew? Oh, my gosh. It's gorgeous, right? Yeah. You know, uh, it's supposed to be uh, based on uh, a hotel in uh, Estes Park in Colorado, I think. Have you been there growing up in Colorado? Uh, no, no, no. I, uh, I've never been there. I just uh, looked up some stuff for the movie and found that's what it's based on. But, you know, there's a lot of lodges like that because not everybody was into skiing when, you know, at the turn of the century. And then very quickly that changed. And so there's some really gorgeous hotels and places that it can be pretty difficult to get to. But the inside, oh, my gosh, like it's phenomenal. Like, wouldn't you love to stay at a place like that? Sure. And Kubrick actually was not really into set design, which is hard to believe. Nicholson was explaining that uh, Kubrick actually just had people go around America at various hotels shooting pictures of different accommodations. So if you feel like the lodge at some point is just so large that it's odd how the carpet pattern changes or like this room doesn't look like that room that they're in and that it goes through a lot of different styles, it's because literally they emulated various hotels across America. So in a way, it isn't one place. It's a collection of places. Yeah, and you know, the interiors make no sense. In some cases, um, Omen's office has a light pouring through the window, but there's an office on the other side of that wall, so there shouldn't be any light. So the interiors and the exteriors don't really match, which kind of adds to the confusion of the building and the feeling that the building is its own living being. I agree with that. Kubrick just, again, didn't feel like the atmosphere was the big part of what this was. It was the characters for him, but in a way, I'm with you, Travis. I think the fact that nothing goes together in a way sometimes becomes a bit unnerving. There's like nothing inherently creepy about it, but at the same time, there's that. And then Kubrick did do something where he would, it would shoot the same scene, and then mm -hmm. as he would cut and move it, they would move a chair. Mm -hmm. Or that he would cut and then they would move some boxes around. And what that's doing is in a subliminal, it's totally subliminal. You're not going to sit there and go, oh, they missed that chair. Like, that's a continuity error. It's not a continuity error. They're doing it to mess with you. They're putting you on edge. And mm -hmm. another thing that he's doing to keep you on edge is he's always moving the camera. If you think that there's a little bit of shakiness to it, it's deliberate. Like, mm -hmm. he's trying to always make you feel like you're on the, it doesn't let you get settled. So. Yeah. And, and they were, this was one of the first films to use the Steadicam technology. And creator of the camera was like, this is the, it's used to its full intent in this movie. And, you know, if you watch kind of the behind the scenes stuff, you can see, you know, a person running behind Danny with um, this camera. It kind of, you know, looks like a selfie stick in some ways, but it, you know, they're running through the hotel with this camera and it's it's not jerky like the Blair Witch it, it's much more smooth I feel yeah I also thought it was interesting as we're talking about themes that go through here there's a lot of red in this movie <laughs> the elevators the the blood that comes out of the elevators the corridors that he's going down has a lot of red in the carpet Charlie Duvall's dress or the collar uh, um, turtleneck mm -hmm. uh, was red there's a lot of red in the kitchen it's just one of those things where I think that's a horror movie thing to me. It makes me think of blood. And so there's like a sense of threat that's around. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you know, as architects, you kind of learn that red kind of brings out anger and stuff in people too. So apparently it also makes you hungry because McDonald's is yellow and red because yellow makes you move fast and red makes you hungry. So they want you to eat and get out of there fast. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, the McRib is back. I met first of those yesterday. As a kid, I didn't like the pickles on the McRib, but now as an adult, I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, I'm a strict no pickles, no onions guy on my McRib. Okay. So, so that, that's how I used to do it. Fish though. I don't, I don't like the pickles on the fish. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so so swinging that back around to The Shining is, you know, they don't really, like, yeah, they address the huge amount of food, but then they don't really, like, talk about food that much because that place is huge, and three times a day, like, there's no other food options. So that means three times a day, somebody's got to go down there and cook, and they don't really show that in the way that, like, I think that they could have if they were going a little more, if this were, say, a Netflix miniseries, yeah. right? I think that we would see more of those that day-to-day aspect causing some of the friction and some of the isolation, the going crazy. Because even in, you know, the late 1970s in Denver, Colorado, you're probably not eating all your meals at home. That's a good point. And uh, Shelley Duvall walks through the corridor with a, with a tray showing you how far from the, to get to the room that she had to go. But the show that they don't show her in the kitchen. You're right about that. Well, I think there is like a refrigerator and stuff in the apartment when you first see it. Hmm. Uh, when they walk in. The interesting part of that is it's a hotel and it's meant to feed several guests. So you think of, you know, you're opening a five pound ham. You're not. That's right. They did show her like opening up like a whole huge can, like the size of a paint bucket, like to to just get some fruit out of it or something like that. I'm just like, well, I guess we're eating fruit all day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's one of those things where the, the premise is, you know, to make it scary that they're staying in this big hotel but in reality you know why would you just have uh one guy taking care of this huge building over uh the lapse of what five or six months you know you should have like a skeleton staff but you should have some staff there we did talk about Shelley Duvall being pushed into being uncomfortable I I also read that Jack Nicholson in order to keep him agitated they served him a, uh, talking about food here, they served him cheese sandwiches for two weeks straight, and he hates cheese sandwiches. So, um, so uh, just to kind of, like, make him angry, it's, it reminds me of Hugh Jackman when he said he wanted to play Wolverine. Like, to get, like, in Wolverine mode, he took, like, all cold showers to be, like, and it made him angry and, like, you know, get him, gets, gets you all tense and ready. Apparently, Jack Nicholson is a cheese sandwich for Jack, Hugh Jackman. It's a, it's a cold shower. So yeah. That unleashes the beast. If we're talking like, you know, some higher end cheese, that might not be so bad. But if we're talking, you know, regular old, when you're a kid, the sliced American cheese, that's awful. That's like cruel. Cheese product. The yeah. kind of government cheese that you're going to eat in a van down by the river. <laughs> anyway, uh, Kubrick here, he's he's very an operatic director. It's not about being real. And he is quoted as saying... Real is good, but interesting is better. I thought it was interesting. Where did you see him taking the fact that you don't really know what's going on? We, t- we, we touched on this earlier, Travis, but as you're watching this movie, particularly the first time that you watched it, what are your impressions of of this as you're going through? Because for me, I thought like Danny was being possessed by something evil. I thought, I thought he was bad. Well, I, I think the premise overall of the movie is that you know, because we got a hotel built on an Indian burial ground, we've now got, like, this living, breathing hotel that's sole purpose is to collect people. Yeah. And Danny is, like, the prize to collect because he shines. And so the hotel wants to absorb that ability. And I think you see that when Grady is telling Jack to correct his son. The big part of it is that it's the hotel attacks the family i think all of them in one way or the other but jack is actually the unstable person and so he is the one that the hotel is able to crack 
and he is the one that the hotel tries to unleash on his family. So you think it goes for the mentally weak or like the, the susceptible? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit about it being a ghost story. And I don't know that the ghosts actually exist. I think it's the hotels using these kind of presences to crack the occupants of the hotel. Now, why it doesn't do this to uh, the other staff during regular hours or regular business times during the summer when it's open, it's never really covered. But I think once you got three people versus hundreds of people passing through, it's a lot easier to like continue to drill into these people um, the madness. Stuff really starts to pick up once it snows, like yeah. with that first snow that comes in. That's when stuff starts to go down and the communication goes out. So maybe mm. there's a once degree you're of you want you yeah. trapped captive audience. I had a I had a much different take on it, I guess, uh, particularly with the ending when we see that, you know, Jack Nicholson's character was actually there at the July 4th party in 1921. Right. Yes. And when and it's uh, when Grady says, I- I've always been here. And so have you. Mm-hmm. I think that that's. Or, yeah. And so I think the that's the idea is that there was something that happened with this hotel that the staff or certain members of the staff are part of it. And even if they're reincarnated, assuming you believe in that, that when you come back, that at a certain point in your life, you're going to come back to the hotel. And if you're one of the twitchy, crazy ones, when you come back to the hotel, you kill your family. That's actually Mary's, what was similar to Mary's take? Mary felt like Mm -hmm. that Jack was a reincarnated soul of Grady and that they were one and the same. Oh, okay. And so that she felt like this happened 10 years ago and it's cyclical. Like this was like almost like it comes back every 20 years, like mm-hmm. the clown. It's also Stephen King, um, uh, yeah. also burial grounds, pet cemetery. I mean, uh, so anyway, sorry, but uh, she felt like, she felt like this was going to happen again in 10 years. Yeah. But if it happened 10 years before, then he couldn't be Grady reincarnated because Grady had just been, he was still alive when Grady did that. Right? That's a good point. Yeah, I kind of looked at it as that picture was the sign of the hotel has collected him. I so do you okay? So the, I believe that the picture has been added to over time. I believe that it's a live document, and that when the next person snaps and goes crazy, they will then be added to right, right. the nineteen twenty one photo. That's the collection. It, it's showing ah, the people it has collected. I, I that's that's kind of where I went with that photo. Yeah. See, I I think I was more of the. How did it get supernatural in the first place? It was probably something that happened at that 1921 party. Like, it was those people. See, the fact that we can have four conversations in this, like there's four people's Mm -hmm. views, that's really cool. Yeah, and and it hits me like, you know, kind of like the Fight Club or uh, Sixth Sense. Okay. Where, like, you can't watch the movie once. you got to watch it several times to really understand what's happening. Oh, absolutely. I, but, I mean, Kubrick is making it ambiguous on purpose. And I would argue, I don't know if you would agree with me, Andrew, does the ambiguity make you more uncomfortable and, like, give you a sense of creepiness as you watch it? I don't think so. I think it, because he definitely could have made that, done a lot of similar things and made you more scared. But I think that he went for more suspense horror as opposed to hack and slash horror. Yes. You know, where it's just like blood everywhere and everything. And I, I think that I think that, that was, you know, I, I think he could have done more and still been very successful. I think he just, this was the way he went. But I think that the ambiguity was had more to do with him not wanting to get stuck 
with what Stephen King, you know, with Stephen King's book is I think he wanted to let the have the audience wondering at the end of the day, oh, exactly what happened. I don't think it's so much that it adds to your being scared or anything like that. I think it adds to this right here, what we're doing right now, discussing. Uh, I, agree I think that's that. the, the main Kubrick never, and this goes for his other movies, I remember studying this in 2001 when we did the 2001 episode, uh, which you can go back and check that out from 2018, we did that one. And uh, the in that, Kubrick, I remember, never would spill out or explain or decipher his movies for people, but he really enjoyed watching people try and figure it out and put, put stuff out there. So the fact that we're doing this now was was part of what he liked. More fun camera talk though. Uh, the uh, smoothness of the camera at the beginning, that beautiful opening scene, like right away you know that you're dealing with some, some good cinematography uh, as the camera goes over these beautiful landscapes. Somehow the soundtrack though, which we'll get into later, is already off putting you on the edge despite these beautiful views. But uh, they actually rebalanced and calibrated the blaze of a helicopter to work with the vibrations so that the camera would compensate for that to get the smoothest helicopter shot possible. Uh, and then we're talking about the there's St. Mary's Lake in Montana, which they're, they're suggesting it's Colorado, but still it's Montana. But uh, right off the beginning, he hits you with it. Uh, the, the corridor scene that Travis was mentioning earlier with the twins in it and as you're following Danny around. They rigged up a wheelchair that had mountings on it, and they had like pull grips so that this camera would go uh, adjust to the angles as needed on the wheelchair so they could follow Danny around on his big wheel around the set that they had created. It was just really impressive. They used a wide-angle lens to make the hedges, which are actually only about 8 feet tall, look like they're 12 feet tall. And um, one of my favorite ones is the filmmakers tend to strictly always follow a 180 degree rule this is a neat thing when you watch movies if you'll notice there's two characters in a scene and character a is on the left character b is on the right and they may change angles but they're always going to keep character a on the left and character b on the right they always do that to keep you oriented because it messes with you as a viewer actually fight club might not do that at, at, at a certain point but kubrick breaks this rule strategically at one place and it's where grady is talking to jack in the bathroom and it's almost as if to say they're kind of rubbing off on each other. They're, they're are, like, what, like, are they really the same person? Maybe they're this idea of like, I'm pulling you into my world. That move, that scene, that red, red, red bathroom. Mm -hmm. Again, back to the color red too, by the way. Yeah. I just love that. Really, really crafty move. Yeah. It, isn't kind of crazy that they're in this bathroom and there's no one else in there, but the ballroom is full. Good point. Um, yeah, that, and no one comes in. That it, it's a fairly long conversation that's occurring. So, yes, I mean, I I feel like talking about the color red being poignant and the shining just is kind of summed up in one thing: red rum, red rum, red rum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. Red lipstick on the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah perfect. What, what, you can't write red rum in pink lipstick though. No, no, and you know it's kind of funny. Maybe a nice chartreuse. <laughs> when you watch it, Danny writes his R backwards in one yes. and then writes it the correct way. It's funny that uh, talking about things that Kubrick would do over and over again, Jack Nicholson brought in, was made to do so many of these scenes over and over again. Sidney Pollack was kind of talking about this. Uh, he's another director, but he said, so often Jack Nicholson's scenes in The Shining are not the ones that they shot first, second, or third, or fourth. It's the 70th one. There's actual humor starting to seep through in what Jack's doing because he would do it 
like really big, he would then do it kind of like, and then he would lose energy and then he'd be really quiet and then he would build up again. And then he would just start to be like, what are we even doing here? Like, this is all a big joke. And some of those really big bombastic ones when the actress might be getting a little more Mm -hmm. frustrated are some of the stuff that you're using from Jack Nicholson. So including the, here's Johnny. Kubrick almost edited that out. He's from England. He didn't know what the reference was. Glad they kept that. Yeah, and and the little pigs. Yeah, I'm going to blow in your house and you know considering that the here's Johnny is probably the most famous quote from that movie and one of the most famous movie quotes of all time yeah probably a good thing he kept it yeah for sure but yeah that, that's another example of what you were talking about Andrew of there was an evolution to it, but man, I would not want to be the editor on this movie. Can you imagine being responsible? The editor is the guy who gets handed like the, all these cans of film and then says like, here, stitch these together, make sure there's no continuity errors and make sure everything works. And like, oh man. Yeah. Well, Kubrick himself stripped it. Yeah. At the end. Yeah, I thought he edited it himself. Well, at least he did it. Okay. Well, then he, yeah. Yeah, there you go then. At the premiere, um, there was a scene at the end where um, Omen visits uh, Wendy in the hospital, and Kubrick felt that it, it took away, so he stripped it before um, it went out. Oh, yeah, race. I don't want that at all. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like I like the... I, they're probably going to make it off the mountain, but I like the sense of finality. Oh, there's multiple versions of the movie, and I actually, like I said, I watched it on Tuesday, and then I watched it yesterday, and I ended up watching two different versions, just pulling it up online. What, uh, what were the differences for you? Uh, so the first one didn't have the scene with the, uh, doctor, uh, and the kid. So that was surprising. I didn't know about him, you know, dislocating his son's arm until he's telling him at the bar. Oh, I'm glad that I, I, I prefer that being in, uh, the, uh, the scene where he gets the snow cat where he's like, he's like, what do you need a snow cat for? And he's the guy, he's like, there's this family up there. That scene? Yeah. That wasn't in the first one. And then, oh, I think there's actually a, a kitchen scene um, where she's um, actually making some food in that big kitchen. Yeah, I, I got um, that too. And and that wasn't in the first version that I watched. Oh, um, I think there was at least one other scene. Um, there's a total of, I think, said 27 minutes between the longest version released and the shortest version released. Oh, that's a big difference. It's at least 15 minutes. I know that. I, I don't remember the dice. It's either 17 or 27 but I, or something like that. But it's sizable. You know what I mean? We're not talking about five-second clips here. I wonder if that has to do with TV because sometimes for TV, they'll cut stuff yeah. down to make make sure stuff fits. Make sure it, they get some more commercial time. Because I do think I don't remember some of this stuff. And I've watched definitely watched a TV version before because mm-hmm. I, I, I also know the, uh, the haunting scene in the bathroom with the, the young woman turning into the old woman. I remember it but i don't remember it like that and it's far more off-putting because i mean kubrick built a ton of tension because you got all this music going and then this young woman's there she's beautiful but again you're not comfortable in this overly saturated like sickly yellow and green room and then like all of a sudden it switches and you're like i knew something bad was gonna happen yeah like i feel like that if they wanted you know teach an abstinence only class that's pretty much the scene they need to show to boys (laughs) Because, like, you know, that, that's a real quick way to make you be like, yes, I'm really not in the mood right now. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> like, that was pretty awful. Agreed. You know, we're going back to these uh, off-color topics or whatever, the, 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 the furry guy or the guy who's in, like, a bear costume, 
uh, you know, filleting another guy and ghost guy in the hotel. That's not explained in my version that I saw, and I wish there had been some mentioning of it. Apparently, when I read up on it, Stephen King in the book, there was mentioning of the previous hotel owner being a homosexual, and this is this is that ah. carryover from that. In the movie, that's just that's just a lark. That's just out of nowhere. Yeah, it's just kind of like this random thing. It, you know, I I tried to go into this and liking, or at least trying to understand Shelley Duvall's character, and I think I did a little bit more the second time around. But for the most part, in this part of the movie, she's prancercising around this hotel. You know, she's running, her hands are flopping around, she's got this big kitchen knife, how she never cuts herself. I don't get it. And she's seeing all these things while her son is being chased by her husband with an axe out in the maze. Yeah, well, she's hysterical. So I, I, I do. Wait, are you, are you a thumbs up or thumbs down like this? This is the one part, you know, I, 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 I can't forgive her for in the movie. I, th- I think the second time around watching it, I started to realize, hey, she's actually really playing this part. Well, at least the way Kubrick wants it oh, to be yeah. played. She's, I actually would contest. That. I think she does a great job at the end. She, she loses it well. Yeah, I agree. Like her southern accent in the beginning doesn't totally make sense, but there is a frailness and a vulnerability to her that she, helps. Yeah, she, and she seems flighty. I feel. I think. I think one of the hardest things I had at believing, or the, one of the things that I thought made me uh, suspend my disbelief was like, how's that tiny little skinny lady gonna drag uh, Jack Nicholson all over <laughs> this hotel down to the dry goods room? Yeah, or he's waking up and she can't figure out how to pull the pin out of the door i was gonna say you gotta at least put him like on that like gurney where she like served the food earlier or something like that because that little tiny lady is not dragging that big man around yeah. all by himself by his ankles <laughs> yeah the first thing she's gonna go do is she's gonna go tie him up first there's no way that that's what she's, she's that's obviously what she's gonna do she's going to make sure that he can't move and then she'll move him around maybe that's another scene but, in kubrick cut maybe he said hey, danny do you have any tape you mean scotch tape yeah, sure. No. Then why did you say that? <laughs> I, I don't think that Kubrick cared one iota about whether or not continuity or things made sense. I think all he cared about was, are you scared? Did I do a good job of that? Are my audience at the end of it like, holy crap, that movie scared me. Clearly, we are talking about it now. It's one of the greatest horror movies of all time. So he was right. But the continuity in the plot makes very little sense i think that i read something i don't know if this one russ if you saw this but that apparently there were several scenes in which shelly duvall was supposed to have longer monologues and have more speaking parts than just her screaming or just her kind of being a wet blanket when oh. nicholson yells at her yeah i don't need and that. and apparently she didn't do a very good job with those so pretty much those scenes got cut pretty early on and he that's one of the reasons why he like got so rough with her is or like maybe rough isn't the right word in this day and age maybe why he was so harsh with her in terms of making her do scenes over and over is because he was really disappointed that she couldn't actually pull off some of the monologues but again i don't know maybe it's for the best i don't feel like i need that do you no Uh, i think she's not the right choice i think we'll get to that here shortly um but uh one last uh, thing about your uh, snow there, uh, Andrew, is uh, that was 900 tons of salt, uh, crushed styrofoam, uh, that made that. So 
uh, salt and styrofoam all over the place in the hedge maze and on the outside of that uh, set. Yeah, and think about that. You're running through it. It's bound to kick up powder. This is getting into your eyes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's just, uh, it probably adds more to the like, distress in the scene. Yeah. Can you imagine late 70s UK, some guy is like, you know, trying to pick up ladies at the club and they're like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm in the salt and styrofoam game. <laughs> <laughs> salt and styrofoam. You might have ever heard of a movie called Star Wars. You might have ever heard of, I don't know, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, I do salt and styrofoam for both those. <laughs> I love that you went there with that. <laughs> oh, so uh, soundtrack, uh, Travis. What do we think about some of this eerie? A lot of it's not really musical per se, but uh, mm-hmm. it has some score at the beginning too. What do you think about the soundtrack as a compliment to the movie? Um, I, I think some of the some of it like adds to the eeriness of it. I couldn't get over the harsh tones of you know when the shining portions are happening. Uh, it's it's just so um, shrill. Yeah, it's a cacophony and, of like a like. Yeah, yeah, and you know I'm watching this on uh, my television, which I have a Sono system, and you know I have to turn it down. I just can't take that part. So I don't. Uh, it's not the best score. I, I don't know that it really needs music, though. I think you know it, at some point it it's overwhelming and harsh, but. Wow, I think it's a great compliment. But uh, Andrew, what, what do you think? Uh, wh- where are you on the soundtrack? I think the soundtrack did for what that type of movie is. I think it's phenomenal. It's not, I'm not sitting there thinking about the music as I'm watching it. The music is making me feel the way that whatever that scene's going on, the director wants. So like you said on the opening road trip, the opening drive scene, right? Yeah. Very quickly, we're not sitting there thinking like, oh, two guys on a fishing trip out in the open country, going to catch some good fish and talk about their lives. <laughs> we're thinking, oh, something ominous and bad is happening just from the music right away. So I think that through the whole the whole movie, I think that the score and everything done in that way is excellent. I, that That's actually one of the things I have uh, the least amount of qualms with i have probably no criticisms with and well that's pretty rare for me russ no and it's influential a lot of horror movies today take note of some of these i would you call them non-musical musical moments of taking these instrumentations that are scratchy even having people's voices like over lines not intelligible they're not like talking to you in the meantime but it's just eerie sounds basically mm-hmm. this is something movies today do a lot and this is the earliest i've noticed of it and i'm thinking it's i think it's the one that set the standard for for a lot of those soundtracks out there i think hitchcock did a little bit of that okay okay i you know the shrill that rant, 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 in psycho definitely for sure i do see that that actually that is very reminiscent of shirley devole huddled in the corner with a knife i mean she's the one with the knife in this case but like she screams and the the music goes through one of those bursts that you said you didn't like yeah. it. you had to turn the tv down like it makes her scream even more pronounced. yeah it's more of the sound when danny's going into like his trances that in in fairness it's 1980 so you yeah. know it's not the uh, greatest of audio equipment being used at the time and i 
you when you're playing on modern equipment it can come through a little bit harsh I, I, and again i'm listening to it on a surround sound system so perhaps if you don't have that it's not as like high pitched you can really feel the tweeters or okay. getting their workout I thought it was interesting. Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind were the two that uh, wrote the score for this. They actually produced a full electronic score for the film as, as well, but Kubrick tossed a lot of that out and only <laughs> went with like the classical uh, uh, stuff in there. So uh, what you're hearing are tubas, trombones, and French horns, and they kind of create that really haunting, hollow, deep mm-hmm. sounds. I don't know. Kubrick actually said that some of those uh, non-musical music moments uh, were influenced by David Lynch's Eraserhead. And uh, that was his favorite film. And so in that movie, they separate nightmares from dreams. But this one, I think that the hotel, I think they use that to show supernatural. Mm-hmm. Andrew, do you, do you want to, are there any look for this moments that you happened across while coming through this? When uh, Scatman's in the hotel room in Florida. Yeah. Uh, the art on the wall. Yeah. I thought the fact that they didn't just have one painting of that nature, but they had two was a little over the top. I thought like that wasn't like it was like wow you're really having to make this point aren't you? <laughs> have, have you seen Clockwork Orange by the way, Andrew? Uh, I have. I've watched that movie many times. Me and my friends watched it in college a bunch. I think that this is a little Kubrickism that he took from Clockwork Orange and injected it into uh, injected it into that. So it, it, it's it's uh, a it's a little bit of a Clockwork Orange paraphernalia laying around. Uh, there's a lot of uh, phallic shapes and pornographic things that are just around in the world of clockwork orange it doesn't fit the shining but uh sure enough uh there it is although i you mentioned that jack nicholson's like reading a nudie mag at one point yeah that's that was what i was going to say is jack nicholson's reading playgirl of all things playgirl yeah okay playgirl magazine and like there's this big controversy about it because apparently there's an in that issue of playgirl there's a, a article on incest and so people were saying it oh. refers to that he may have more of an abusive relationship towards Danny than... Oh, man. Um, I don't want to go there. I, yeah. I just kind of think in this way, he's crazy. Well, I was going to say that the normal argument would be he's just reading it for the articles, but you kind of took away from that argument from being <laughs> a good one, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> My look for this moment is going to be Stephen King got the idea for a book while he and his family were actually staying at the Stanley Hotel at Estates Park in Colorado, and uh, they were the last guests there before it shut down for the winter. And King and his family stayed in room 217 in the haunted room in the novel. But uh, the film room is 237, so another thing that Kubrick changes. Uh, allegedly, allegedly, the exterior shots are shown from a Oregon uh, hotel and that they do not have a 237, but they have a 217. And they didn't want their 217 to be haunted. Bad business move. You should want that. I guess they wanted to change to 237. That's that's the way that legend goes. They were afraid that people would not want to stay in that room, that they'd be afraid to do so. To the contrary, it's the most requested room. You know, 217 is their most requested suite when people show up. And if you watch the clips, at least, on YouTube of the miniseries, that is the actual hotel that Stephen King stayed in. So that is the one that the book is based oh, off of. Cool. Let's get into superlatives. Travis, why don't you kick us off here with your MVP? You know, it's either Jack Nicholson or Stanley Kubrick, I would say. I'm going to lean towards Nicholson since he's in it. You know, he's Jack Nicholson, and I think the casting was perfect for him. 
Okay. Andrew, who's your MVP? I'm literally going to say, word for word, it's either Kubrick or Nicholson. You know what? I'll go Kubrick since uh, we've already got a vote for Nicholson, and that way you can cast Tiebreaker. Because if you say Shelley Duvall, we're going to kick you out of this podcast. <laughs> Man, she's getting uh, she's getting a rough go around in this one. Uh, Stanley Kubrick is going to get mine on this one. Again, to take the source material and immediately go into changing it and to make this very psychological movie, there's, there's one of the things that I think that I love that Kubrick does in this. There aren't many horror movies like this. You kind of have been... It, they spell it out for you. They say that everything's going to happen. They say that this has happened here before, that there was a murder here before, that this hotel has a reputation. There's a sense of inevitability that you're marching towards. And the only other movie that I can think of that's quite like this is Rosemary's Baby. And there's such a unique brand to these kinds of movies where it's just like you're watching something that you know that's bad is going to happen, but you can't stop it. The character that's in it doesn't know it, but you know it. And you're just sitting there watching this horrible thing unfolds slowly and the tension that builds out of that. Kind of like going to a friend's wedding. <laughs> it's just, it's just really, it's really unique. And I want to give Kubrick a lot of credit for that. There aren't many movies like this. Yeah. You know, like I said, you could go either way. Yeah. Yeah. Best supporting actor, Travis. I'm going to say Danny. Danny Lloyd. Okay. Yeah. Danny Lloyd was. He's a good Kate actor. Yeah. Yeah. And ironically, it's the only movie he ever does. Yeah, yeah, he's actually a professor now in uh, Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Uh, and he did not get to see the movie until he was 17. <laughs> well, I think, you know, it's just the part that there's parts in this movie where he's definitely terrified. I don't know what's going on while he's going through the hedge maze, because clearly they didn't have Jack Nicholson chasing him. And him still not believe that he's not in a horror movie. So, I mean, he's acting a different part than actually what the movie is, and but it's convincing enough that it works. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Andrew, best supporting actor. I'm going to have to go with Scatman. I mean, uh, I think the best thing that I can say is he has to do majority of him, his scenes by himself. It's pretty much just him when outside of the one scene with Danny. Pretty much the rest of it, it's him deciding, oh, I need to try to go save these people. We spend all of those scenes just based on the hope that he's going to go save them he gets there and then literally just dies pretty much as soon as he has interaction with a person. Like, no, that's a good point. Yeah. He, he, I'm not sure many actors could, upon a rewatch, could I still enjoy his scenes knowing that, that that's the payoff. And I think that every time you can enjoy watching him. Uh, and then everybody that's listening to this, Go do yourself a favor and do an IMD deep dive on him. It's a pretty awesome guy. Scatman Crothers. It's interesting, actually, Andrew, that you mentioned that he's doing a lot of his work alone. And that you mentioned that Danny did a lot of his work alone. Kubrick actually shoots a lot of people on their own in this. And he shoots uh, Nicholson and Duvall not together hardly ever. And when they are, they're out of fo one of them's out of focus and not really in the frame. It's his way of saying that these people are isolated and having these moments on their own. So Danny is supposed to be very alone in the hotel or Scatman Crothers is alone in this moment. And he's perceiving Danny, which makes that ESP that they have even more pertinent. So just more good work from Kubrick there, but you're absolutely right. That's a challenge for the act. So uh, I'm going to go Scatman Crothers as well. Like you, Andrew, I just think another interesting story is when he worked with Clint Eastwood the next time Clint's known for no taking very few takes. Scatman broke down in tears and just said, thank you, Mr. Eastwood. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> he's, he's the voice of Hong Kong Fooey as well, I think. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then uh, he did voiceovers. He did children's shows. And then he was like in pretty much every single show in the 70s. I think he got at least one, you know, guest spot on. He did tons of stuff. He's really good here because he admits warmth with Danny right away. There's a sense of ambiguity again. Where, can we trust this guy? Like, we don't really know if we trust you. But mm -hmm. upon coming back to it next time, you know he's a good guy. So then you see that warmth come through. And then at the same time, you see him warning, warning him in a very foreboding manner of like, don't you go near that room. So yeah, hidden gem. Travis. I'm going to say Grady. Grady? Okay. Yeah, Grady is quite terrorizing when you get down to it. I mean, the line, I have to correct them, sir. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Philip Stone. It, everyone knows what he's talking about at that point. It, he's two different people as well. He's addressed as Delbert when he's in the bathroom. Well, Delbert Grady is yeah. his name, yeah. But he's called Charles at the beginning. Oh. When... Oh, good the, catch. I actually didn't catch that. Yeah, when they talk about him attacking his family, they call him Charles Grady. Oh. He introduces himself as Delbert. You're right about that. And he goes from like this very helpful guy to... Well, he's helpful. Very, he unlocks the door yeah. so he can murder his family. I mean, that, how can you be more helpful than that? <laughs> well, you know, when he first is, you know, he's very apologetic. He takes him into the bathroom to help him clean up. He's being completely kind to him, and then he starts getting stern. When Jack Nicholson starts saying, I know you, you killed your family. Oh, yeah, that's a normal conversation. I'm sorry I spilled this drink. Can you help me help yeah. you get cleaned up? By the way, kill your family. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Yeah, I'll do that. Well, well, Jack Nicholson tells him, I know you, you killed your family. And he's like, I did not. And then he's, I had to correct them. My daughters tried to burn down the hotel. Yeah. So, uh, Andrew, who is your hidden gem? Mine's also going to have to be Grady, uh, and here's the reason why, is if I were going to give a synopsis of this movie, I would say family ends up being caretakers of a hotel over the winter. When some parental issues arise, the father seeks unique spiritual advice and then decides to follow through. Sure. And if, if in that succinct of a analysis, I have to include him, because you do, right? He's the unique spiritual advice giver then you gotta give the guy the hidden gem so if i can if i figure if i can talk about the movie in two sentences or less and get him him involved then he's got to be the hidden gem i'm gonna go a little deeper of a cut i'm gonna go with billy gibson and leah beldum leah beldum and billy gibson are the women in the bathroom so you have the young woman and and she's beautiful but also you as i mentioned before it's a very threatening scene at the same time then it turns into this horrifying dead corpse of a woman so good job for them because that was a very effective scene that i, I won't be forgetting I, I i was gonna say think about it he um is investigating this room because this woman abused his child and his first thought is yeah hey <laughs> you know you just climbed out of the bathroom yeah just out of curiosity, Russell, did the young woman, did she do anything else? Was she in anything of note, anything that we would know? I know for a fact the old woman had not been in a movie before or after. In terms of Leah Beldum, she's she, a Swedish model, I think. She is the pretty naked girl in Ready Player One from 2018. That seems, un oh, she's uncredited in that. So this is her only movie credit. That's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Travis, if you had to recast somebody and put somebody in their place... Who would it be and who are you putting in their place? It has to be Shelley Duvall, although I think she did a good job of um, portraying a beaten woman. There's points where you're just kind of rooting for Jack to kill her. Wow. <laughs> um, she's just 
I don't know. It's she's flighty and like I said, she's running around the hotel while her child's being terrorized, and she's really doing nothing to help them. Okay. You know, at the time, Jessica Lang. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, you know, Meryl Streep, maybe. Oh yeah, she's gonna be good at anything. Yeah. So. Okay. Andrew, who are you recasting? Who are you putting in their place? I'm I'm gonna take creative license here. We're gonna move the entire thing up a decade. And we're going to have Tom Hanks play the Nicholson part. We're going to have Macaulay Culkin play the little kid part. We're going to have Samuel Jackson play the uh, Scatman part. I like that. And then, <laughs> I, and then uh, I think in the best option from that time period, more along the lines of what King wanted, we go with Kim Basinger. Oh, okay. Well, I like all of these actors, so I'd still want to see this movie. Although the Hanks one, I'm really having a hard time seeing like him go that dark. Yeah. That's yeah. the whole point is, don't you want it? Tom Hanks threatening Kim Basinger with, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your head in. I don't know. If he goes crazy on his own in the middle of the writing room, will he have a volleyball Wilson with him? <laughs> it's just you and I, Wilson. Yeah. Yeah, like I said earlier, I think... Gary Wilson Busey. doesn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Busey could play this part pretty well. Um, maybe Brian Cranston too. I like Shelley Duvall and I like everybody else involved with this, so I'm going to take a little bit of an easy way out. I actually did not like Lloyd the bartender. He is off-putting, and I know that Grady is off-putting in his own way, but there's no charm to him. He's supposed to lure you into this world. And I want to see eccentric out of this character, but not total, like, I didn't like Joe Turkle's view on this one. So I'm going to go with John Lithgow here. Okay, Russ, yeah. I'm going to teach you something. When a bartender says credit's fine and then you're no, your money's no good here, he has done everything in the world possible to make himself as endearing as he can. Okay. okay. He is now the best friend and the most endearing person you've ever met in your life. Wouldn't you like an eccentric John Lithgow <laughs> to say that, though, in this movie? Of, oh, sure, I could, uh, yeah. Okay. No argument there. Just, you know, saying he was endearing. He gave him drinks for free. <laughs> That's endearing as heck. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, best shot of the movie, Travis. The bathroom scene. I, I think where you start to see, um, you know, I see Grady as the um hotel itself he's he's not really a ghost he's the hotel yeah and the hotel is you know pressuring him now that he needs to do these things it, it, it clearly wants danny um but it's going to use nicholson in that way and, and i said he goes from like being very friendly and open to like kind of pull him in to the point that he gets you know you need to do this because you're your kid's trying to pull in um, help to, to save the family. And that's where they break the rule. Yeah. So, uh, Andrew, <laughs> best shot of the movie. That was a really tough one. I struggled with this because I had three rated just very, very highly. But uh, I'm going to have to go with the uh, scene we just talked about where Nicholson is enters the bedroom. He's ready to get it on with the young woman. And then he looks at the mirror and sees her back and realizes it sees all the decay and that it's an old woman. And that, that whole scene is phenomenally done. It just, I mean, when you're, when you're like at first, first time I'm watching it, you're just like, Oh, okay. Like this has turned out pretty well for Jack Nicholson. And then like, ah, ah, it's awful. It is awful. So. 
my this shot's gonna go with the long tracking shot of Danny being followed on his big wheel with the camera on the wheelchair going behind him. It's iconic. You it leads down to the corridor where the twins say, "Come play with us, Danny." It's yeah. just this is this is great. This is to me that's the image of the movie. And by the way, I love the elevator with the blood coming out of it too. Yeah, but it's a little, Which little bit. Which I think is grape juice, right? I don't remember, but I know that you can't show blood in previews. And Kubrick told people that it's just rusty water. Yeah. And to get it to go through. And so interesting, Kubrick made them do that one only three times, but it took them nine days to set that up between sets. So so a whole month went into the L of that, that shot, too. Yeah. Um, uh, best scene. It's got to be Here's Johnny. Okay. Uh, so, no argument. That, so, that, that, that's like, I think, we, I think we're going to be unanimous on this. I actually am going to go with the one where I like the scene where Shelley Duvall... Wendy picks up the script for the player, um, the, the writings that he's gotten. It says all work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. And she realizes Jack has absolutely snapped. And it's the moment where in the movie where everything is coming like to the climax. We're entering into that. And she's just sad. like, Or she's just crying. She's like, she's lying just to get out. She's like, I'm very confused. I need to go lie down. She's swinging that bat at him. And then he says, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to bash your head in. Yeah. And like that scene... To me, oh man, that's so good. And by the way, there's if you YouTube it out there, you can see Jim Carrey with his hair slicked back, looking and doing a Jack Nicholson impression, superimposing himself into the scene. It's still Shelley Duvall, but he is emulating Jack Nicholson so closely. It's amazing. So if you YouTube that scene, yeah, you, you can see Jim Carrey do this. Change one thing, Travis. I, you know, I've alluded to this a few times. The part where she's running through the hotel and her son's outside the bear man scene in in the bedroom just without the context it just feels like yeah uh, something that should have been cut that never really yeah i'm with you that's that's a good one andrew change one thing just include a scene where we get nicholson reading the scrapbook from the hotel so just include that so we understand a little more that the influence of that he didn't just snap day one because that's kind of my issue with the scene you just named russ is all the writing is all work and no play makes da- Jack a dull boy. So you're telling me that basically he was typing that the day that they got there, like day two? Like that seems a little bit just that include that. Give me a little more something of that early process of why he loses it. And I'm all in. I think that scene in of itself is showing that he's not a real writer. In the sense that he hasn't really written anything. This is his first book he's trying to write. Yeah. And it just shows like how hard this is. That you just can't say I'm a writer. But the idea for a book comes to you pretty quickly. But then when you sit down and put it pen to paper, it's it's not that great. And, and I think they delve into that a little bit when he's throwing the tennis ball at the wall early on. Like, I have nothing. And here, therefore, I'm just going to sit here and throw this ball against the wall. I'm going to go with something close to what Andrew said here. I'm going to say I want a warmer Jack Torrance to start the movie. I want to see the car ride up. Instead of talking about cannibalism, I'd like to see him make his kid laugh and say something reassuring to his wife. Make them actually feel better about going or something like that to this hotel. There's a coldness in him, and I know that he's a recovering alcoholic. I know that he's battling his demons, but... There's something transformative that we don't fully get with his character. It's, like I said, he's he's not all the way crazy at the beginning, but he's only one step away from mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I believe this guy snapped in a month. Yeah, and that's kind of King's argument, too, that he's supposed to be an everyman, and Jack Nicholson just 
looks crazy from the very beginning. But, uh, you know, there's context there that they believe that Stephen King is actually writing this guy as himself because at this point in time, Stephen King is a recovering alcoholic himself. Yeah, and he did sell. There's a story where his kids are in his yeah. papers and he yanked his kid out. At, like he said, I wanted to kill him. Yeah. And there's a redeeming quality at the end of the book. Like he tries to save the family. Russ, I was going to say, take a picture of yourself the next time you don't get any sleep all night. And uh, I have a feeling you share that with the rest of us. We'll all be like, yeah, you look pretty crazy. You look like you could snap in about a month. My eyebrows are up like Jack Nicholson's <laughs> right now. My hairline's back. <laughs> well, best quote of the movie, Travis. All work and no play makes Jack a doll boy is a good one. But I, Here's Johnny is just too iconic. It is iconic. Andrew, best quote. It's Here's Johnny. Stop taking all my answers, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, I, I would, I'm going to make that a clean sweep, but I'm also, just for diversity's sake, also equally famous is, come play with us. Forever. Yeah. Forever. <laughs> Those twins are really creepy, by the way. Mm-hmm. And it's been done many times over since then. Oh, yeah. I also felt that the Red Rock, you know, Red Rock, Red Rock. Oh, man, this was a very quotable movie. You're right. Yeah. I also like, honestly, in a normal movie, this could be up there, but like, well, you don't have to worry about that with me. Yeah. <laughs> I just, that's, that's like dark humor. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I like that one. Oh, man. Uh, regarding the uh, quote, I know this isn't exactly a quote, but one of the things that I think has been so impactful with this movie is not just all of the influence on different horror genres, but literally some of the things that they do in television paying homage to it uh i think the best one being the simpsons the shinning episode yeah <laughs> you guys know that one i i think it's just a com- no. it's a com- just a, it's just a complete knockoff it's one of their uh halloween episodes and it's that they are uh they're going to go take care of mr burns lodge groundskeeper willie has told bart that he is the shinning they changed they added an n in so they didn't get sued and it's, you know, the same thing, except instead of it being all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, it's uh, no no TV and no beer makes Homer go crazy. Nice. Because there's no, there's no beer and there's no TV at the lodge. And it's one of the uh, more famous Simpsons Halloween episodes. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things where, like, I, I remember when it came out, everybody was, like, making jokes about the shitting, even though none of us had actually seen The Shining. Before we go, is there anything you want to plug? You know, the the sequel to this is coming out. Doctor Sleep is the sequel to this. I don't know how great it's going to be, but, I mean, it's Halloween, and it, you know, it's November 8th, I think, is when it's coming out. and It's the next one on my list to see. Okay, and uh, Andrew, is there anything you want to plug? Go see Joker. You know, it's a good time at the movies, and it's going to be the movie that people are going to be talking about in Oscar season. That movie's going to be around. Great plug. Zero to five star scale. Half star intervals. What would you rate The Shining? I would go with a four. I, I really enjoyed the movie. It's very iconic. There are parts of it used, even to this day, parts of it. You know, just a little bit of trivia there. That the director for Toy Story 3 is has like the biggest fan club for The Shining. Really? And there's parts in Toy Story that refer to it. There's a dump truck that's um, license plates RM237. Wow. Uh, carpets in Sid's room matched the carpets in the hotel so it's pretty neat wow I didn't I did not realize about that for me oh sorry uh, Andrew what would you rate this movie on a five-star scale you know I was thinking about this uh, I'm not the world's biggest horror fan, horror movie fan 
And uh, so personally, when I tend to rate a movie on five stars, it's because it's something that I'm probably going to watch a bunch. It's, you know, my type of movie. But I got to say, this movie, I think it I think it gets a five just because of Kubrick's direction. I think he just does, he does so many phenomenal things that last. And then Nicholson in his prime, the combination of those two things, I think it's just a five star. I'm with you. I'm going to go five. It's in my top 20 horror movies of all time. And it's just outside of the top 10. And it's just... It's one of these ones that it's just been really rewarding to come back to, and I look forward to coming back to it again later. A movie that has extremely high rewatch values. Oh, yeah, so much. So, uh, Andrew, would you help me pick a movie for the next time? We're going on a treasure hunt next time, Andrew. Are you excited? Ooh, I am. Option number one, National Treasure from 2004. A historian races to find a legendary Templar treasure before a team of mercenaries. Option two. It's a mad, 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 mad world from 1963. A group of uh, motorists hear about a crook's hidden stash of loot and race against each other across the country to get it. And option number three, Rat Race from 2001. A Las Vegas casino magnate determined to find a new avenue for wagering sets a race up for money. I think we should go with Rat Race. Rat Race it is. Well, thank you so much, Travis, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Andrew, thank you for co-hosting. This was great. Oh, this was fantastic. Hope to be back soon. And Travis, it's great meeting you. I hope uh, we have you on again. And to all the Lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, thank you. We want you to reach out to us, and we want to invite to hear from you. Subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's a really big help. It's the number one way to promote the show and help others find us. Also, if you're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast, give us proper ratings and reviews there as well. Give us a like on Facebook, comment. Every week we're going to put stuff out there. We love to engage with the fans. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com if you want to go into deeper dialogue or if you want to be on the show. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Andrew? I'll be back.